Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be with everybody today. Would you please take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We are going to be continuing our study in Hebrews chapter 6 today. A little quick When I turn it off, mic check, here we are, sorry. A quick overview of some of the chapters that we've already went over. I'm, I'm just going to give a brief overview. It's not like an in-depth overview, but just it, it pulls a couple things that we've already talked about from the previous chapters. Um, when Pastor Kendall's not here and not able to preach, I've been taking us through the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews chapter 1, we saw how in these last days that God has spoken to us by His Son, who is above all. In chapter 2, we were told to pay attention to Christ. And God even bore witness of His own Son by signs and wonders. That was awesome. I remember that one. In chapter 3, we saw how Jesus is greater than Moses because the, the Hebrews were wanting to they were tempted to like go back to the old Jewish traditions because Christ had come, the gospel had come, and this writing to the Hebrews was trying to point them to Christ that they would have a sure and strong footing in Christ and not be tempted to go back to the ways of the old Jewish traditions. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is even greater than Moses, reminding the Hebrews, reminding the Jewish people that one now has come the promised Messiah who is greater than Moses has come. And we were told to exhort one another. That's to encourage each other in this great faith that we have. In chapter 4, we, we talked about spiritual rest and Sabbath rest for the believers. And that we should draw near with confidence to this throne of grace because of the work of Christ. And we've heard a lot about the priesthood of Christ in the book of Hebrews, which we're going to go even further in chapter 7 on that. And then in chapter 5, we talked a little bit about how Jesus, this was good, how Jesus has been called by God, because no priest calls himself to the priesthood. We see that all throughout Scripture. God calls the priest to the priesthood, and the writer of Hebrews just makes it so clear that Jesus did not call himself to this office of our priest. And we ended last week in chapter 5 with this call to go on forward in maturity in our faith. Maturity in our faith, maturity in our walk with Christ. And that leaves us today to where we're at right now with Hebrews chapter 6. In verses, actually in chapter 5 verse 14, I want to start there just because it's talking about maturity because that's where we left off last week. In 5 verse 14, and we will read uh, the Word of God, and then we will look at it. 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, 
For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two and changeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have a lot to cover today. Boy, oh boy. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this true written revelation, the true Word of God that you have given to us. What an awesome time to live where we have all 66 books right here in front of us, God. Open our ears by the power of your Spirit to hear and receive the Word of God. So we ended, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sorry, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, so we saw at the end of chapter 5 this call to go forward in maturity. Six one. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Let's, we're going to pause. We're going to have a lot of pauses today because there's a lot to cover. But it's just interesting though that he would say let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ to go on to maturity. How does that make sense? when our whole faith is in Christ, John MacArthur says that this leave does not mean to despise or abandon the basic doctrines, but rather they are the place to start and not stop. And I read a few guys on this, and they all were saying the same thing. Of course, Christ is where the Christian starts. We don't leave Christ to go on to maturity. He's the place to start. Not laying again a foundation of repentance, 
from dead works of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. We know there's going to be a a resurrection of the dead someday, and there's going to be eternal judgment someday. And this we will do if God permits. And we're going to pause here again. I didn't realize quite the um, hot topic this chapter would be, but this next few verses are actually verses that many people use to say that you can lose your salvation. And when you read it, 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 it sounds like that. But before we dive into those verses, um, I want to talk just a little bit about salvation in general. If our salvation could be lost, and if our salvation could be lost so easily, how terrifying would it be? I've heard it once said that if you could lose your salvation, you would. I'll never forget the first time I heard that. I thought it was so clever. Because we in our own strength can never keep our own salvation, especially since it's not even a work of our own. We read today in in our liturgy, which I'm going to share that verse, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man may boast. It's unconditional. We're saved upon no condition of ourselves. God doesn't think, oh, that condition's better than that one, I'll save that one. We're saved based upon no condition. It's unconditional. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One thing that helped me with my assurance of salvation, and this is something that we're going to be talking a lot about today, is our assurance of salvation. And if you were able to catch the whole chapter we just read, I just think it's so interesting that they use these two verses to say you can lose your salvation when you read the rest of the chapter, and it's all about assurance. I just, I'm just saying, you know, you go through the end, it's just like, I don't know. One thing that helped me with my assurance was when I realized that salvation is all of God. It's a gift from God. I think I already said this, but how terrifying would it be if one day you were saved and the next day you're not? You know, today we're saved. Maybe I sin too much. Tomorrow I'm not saved. And the thing is, is, you know, we need to look to Scripture for our doctrine of salvation. You know, just because you might like what you believe is it really in Scripture? And I'm going to make the case that it is in Scripture, that you cannot lose your salvation. Even Jesus said in John 10, 25 through 30, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You're not among my sheep is what Jesus was saying. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Wouldn't that be weird if, you know, we're all sheep today and tomorrow we're all, we're all goats tomorrow. That, that doesn't really make sense. And not only does it not make sense, it's not what we see in Scripture. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. This is, this is the powerful one here. And no one will snatch them out of my hand is what Christ is saying. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch him out of my Father's hand. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is going to tie in perfectly with the end of our chapter because 
where you're going to see that God's given us His promise and His oath. And we can't be taken out of Christ's hand or the Father's hand. And if you want to go even further and see this amazing Trinitarian work, the Scriptures also say we're sealed by the Spirit of God. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's good. I was hoping we'd see that. Yeah, that's right here. Where is it at? Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And I'm not going to go down that road because I'll get too fired up, but there are people who like to tell people, you don't have the Spirit. Or this one does have the Spirit. I grew up in the charismatic Pentecostal church where they very experience-driven and maybe only those who had these special experiences would have the Spirit of God. But that's not what we see in Scripture. In Scripture we see a true believer comes to faith by God and God is in control of His Spirit because the Spirit is God. The Spirit's not less than the Father and the Son. The Spirit's not some little genie. He's not some hocus-pocus. He's not some feeling. The Holy Spirit is God, just like the Father, just like the Son. And His work is not a joke. It's not something to be joked about. The Bible is clear if you are one of the sheep of Christ. And it's, it's a great, it goes along with assurance. The work of the Spirit in your own heart should assure you of your own salvation. How amazing is that? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. So, how does that tie into this? Well, we just wanted to make it clear that (laughs) salvation is all of God. That way, when we dive into these verses that are coming next, we, we don't get shaken too much. But actually, you'll see they should shake us at the same time. So let's read them once again. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. John MacArthur did make a good point. In other portions of Scripture, when you see the sheep of God, you'll see that they're referred to sometimes as maybe holy or born again or righteous or saints. And it's interesting that you don't see that language here. So, we have to answer, though, what is this talking about? You know, we can't just be up here and be like, oh, that's not what that means. You can't lose your salvation, even though it sounds like you, like you could. It really does sound like that. So, we have to address it. We can't gloss over it and just go with what we like to believe. But I want to read MacArthur and Matthew Henry on this, and it's, it kind of has the same effect. You'll see this. So who are these people? Well, MacArthur says that they had received instruction in biblical truth, which was accompanied by intellectual perception. This is a good point here. Understanding the gospel is not the equivalent of regeneration. 
How many people understand the gospel but don't come to true saving faith? All men experience the goodness of God, but that does not mean that they are all saved. Many Jews during the Lord's earthly ministry experienced <coughs> excuse me, the blessings from heaven that he brought in healings and deliverance from demons, as well as eating the food that he created miraculously. Think about, was it 5,000 men, I think, that were fed miraculously? But the scriptures don't go on and say that all 5,000 came to faith in Christ. I mean, this could very well be what this means. These people were once enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. They shared in the Holy Spirit. They tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. One person that comes to mind when I think of these verses is Judas. Like, think of one person who came so close but didn't believe. I mean, I don't know. To say that Judas didn't taste of the heavenly gift and wasn't enlightened and didn't see the powers of the age to come, I mean, I would think that he did because he saw the work of Christ. He, he like, saw the miracles of Christ right in front of him. And that's part of the, the warning still, okay? We don't want to soften the blow. Even though you can't lose your salvation, we want to make sure that we don't soften the blow of this warning. Because how scary is it that people can come so close to faith and yet still reject God? That's pretty much just as terrifying as thinking maybe you could lose your salvation. But how terrifying is it that people come so close to Christ and yet don't come to salvation? And let's not only think of, oh, that was in the Bible days. I was talking to Pastor Kendall about it, and he even was like, what about a church service? Like, you're hearing the Word of God preached. You're gathering with the saints in worship. It's like, how many people come to church but yet don't come to faith in Christ? And it goes along with the other parts of Hebrews that we read, that we've been warned not to have this heart of unbelief. I don't know if you remember that. If you're here for that, we talked about the generation that God took through uh, the desert and he sustained them for 40 years. Like, come on, people. And, and lots of them didn't come to faith. This, this, should be, this should really stir us up. It should really get us concerned. Like, just to be careful that we don't neglect and that we, don't take, um, that we don't take lightly the things of God in our life. We're going to go further. Matthew Henry says, they may taste of the heavenly gift, feel something of the efficacy of the Holy Spirit and His operations upon their souls, causing them to taste something of religion, and yet be like persons in the market who taste of what they will not come up to the price of. And so but take a taste and leave it. This part's good. Persons may taste religion and seem to like it if they could have it upon easier terms than denying themselves and taking up their cross and following Christ. I mean, how true is that? How many people love the idea of Christianity but won't come all the way to faith because of how high the cost is? The true gospel teaches you have to give up everything to serve Christ. That's the true biblical gospel, that he becomes your master, he becomes your teacher, he becomes your God, your savior. There's false gospels out there that say, well, he just, you know, he becomes my buddy and he just helps me get through hard times. No, 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 no. We have to give up everything to follow Christ. 
They may be made partakers of the Holy Ghost, of His extraordinary and miraculous gifts. They may have devils cast out. They may have cast out devils in the name of Christ and done many other mighty works. Such gifts in the apostolic age were sometimes bestowed upon those who had no true saving grace. They may taste of the good word of God. They may have some relish of gospel doctrines, may hear the word with pleasure, may remember much of it and talk well of it, and yet never be cast into the form and mold of it, nor have it dwelling richly in them. They may have tasted of the powers of the world to come. They may have been under strong impressions concerning heaven and dread of going to hell. These lengths hypocrites may go and after all turn apostates. I thought about that one story where Christ healed the ten lepers and only one came back. But didn't they all receive a great miracle from God? Now, who knows how many of them truly came to faith, but... So this should still strike us because I just think it's so crazy that you could see so much and know so much of the truth of the Word of God and not come to saving faith. And what that also proves is how desperately we need the true work of God's Spirit. That's, that's what it has to be. It has to be the Spirit. You can't make yourself be born again. Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. We are going to move on to verses 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. We see here, you know, he's talking about soil and, 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 and fruit from the rain. And the person who is truly regenerated and comes to faith is going to go and bear fruit for Christ, whereas the one who doesn't come to faith, their end is to be burned. And MacArthur picked up on one thing here in verse 9. You'll see kind of this almost like a shift here. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Almost as if he says that the audience has changed a little bit there. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. So now we're going to focus on the rest of the chapter. Assurance. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your works and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And this, ooh, this part's really good. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. What's earnestness mean? Well, I looked it up. Um, earnestness means sincere and intense conviction. Also, determination and seriousness. We desire each one of you to show this seriousness, to have the full assurance. I love even the languages in there in the ESV version. Full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. Sluggish means slow, moving, or inactive. That you may not be slow moving or inactive, that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I love this part right here because he's encouraging the Hebrews to really, I, I think, be excited about their faith. And, and 
it's just interesting, okay? And this isn't, this isn't always the case, okay? Let me make that clear. This is not always the case. But how often is it that sometimes the people who are sluggish in their faith or the people who aren't, you know, excited about the work of Christ in their life oftentimes are the same people who struggle with their assurance of salvation because they don't really have an assurance. It's hard to be motivated about your faith in Christ when you're not even sure if you're saved. So what he's saying is, is let's look to this great salvation and let's be, you know, the opposite of sluggish. Let's be earnest about it. Let's be earnest about this full assurance of hope that we have until the end. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And we remember this from the Old Testament. God promised Abraham a great, you know, multitude of descendants. And, you know, I could give Alex my word. I'll I'll be there at 3 o'clock, man, this afternoon to help you. You got my word. That was powerful, huh? My word. So, what about God's word? And what it says here is God cannot lie. So, God can't lie. And then He gives you His word. And then we see here He even gives you His oath and His promise. This is powerful. And thus, Abraham, having. Sorry, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, which that does include us, this isn't only physical Israel, because we know in the New Testament that the Gentiles that's us, are grafted in. Praise the Lord. That's the gospel. He came and he saved more than just his, you know, the people of Israel. We've been grafted in. And there's even another verse that says the true Jew is one of the heart. Circumcision is of the heart. The work of the Spirit in the heart. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. <laughs> we have His oath. We have His promise. We're held by the Lord Jesus. We're held by the Father. We're sealed with the Spirit. Come on. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That is deep. And what is this that we have? It's going to go, it's going to point us straight to Christ. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we know the priesthood of Melchizedek goes on forever, and that's the point they're making because Christ's priesthood goes on forever. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I love that language, a steadfast anchor. I was reading some commentaries on this, and I don't remember it all, but they went into depth about how strong like an anchor is and how well it holds. And Christ is our anchor that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We know the veil was torn that day. We can now be made right with God through Christ Jesus. 
where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And we know, we studied earlier in Hebrews, that He became this high priest through suffering. Through suffering for us, He became our high priest. That He was going to rule and reign forever. And His priesthood goes on forever. A few things I'd like us to think about today and focus on today. That this full assurance, it can only come through faith in Christ Jesus. Your assurance should make you the opposite of sluggish. Your assurance of salvation and your hope in the finished work of Christ should motivate you in the Christian life. It should motivate all of us in the Christian life. And isn't, you know, I mean, that's my prayer for, for me and that's my prayer for all of us that as we look to Christ, we would be more excited to serve Him and that God would give us the strength to serve Him. Because that's the thing, even as badly as I want to be excited and passionate about Christ, I can't do that in my own strength. But there's two things, uh, there's many things you could focus on, but two things that you could focus on to, to keep your assurance of your salvation is, is one, focus on the person and the work of Christ. So often when you start looking at yourself is when you can feel lost in your own salvation and it's because you're looking at the wrong place because <laughs> you can't look to yourself for salvation. You can't look to yourself for assurance. You have to keep your eyes fixed on the person and work of Christ. Two, you could focus on the Word of God. You know, His promise, His oath, His Word is sure. It doesn't get better than that. The Lord Jesus Christ, our prophet, our priest, our king, our mediator. The Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, the Lord Christ Jesus. And His purchasing of our salvation, keeping us all the way to the end. That's what we must do. That's what we're commanded to do in the Scriptures. That's what we're commanded to do in the Gospel is to look to Christ Jesus for our salvation. And I picked that song on purpose because it says salvation's work is His from first to last. From first to last, it's all Him. So I'm going to pray for us and that will work out. Yeah. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we thank you so much for saving our souls from hell. Lord, we thank you so much that on that judgment day that's coming, your word says for sure that it's coming, that we don't have to fear that when, when you come out of the clouds with the trumpet blast, we don't have to fear that we're going to be completely destroyed under your holiness because we're found in Christ, Lord. God, I ask that you would give all of us a greater assurance of our salvation and that our assurance would come from you as we look to you, God. Lord, if there's anyone here today, Lord, that might be struggling, even with their own assurance, God, I ask that you would give them greater eyes of faith, God, by your Spirit, that they would look to the person and the work of Christ, that they would look to your Scriptures as the true Word of God. Give them strength and, and hope, God, not to doubt your finished work on the cross. That's why we don't look to any other things, because if you start looking elsewhere, you end up diminishing the work of the cross. Lord God, our hope is in no one else but in the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, God. And we thank You so much for Your, your Word. 
May you be glorified in our lives, God, and give us strength by your Spirit to to go live this Christian life for you and for your own glory. And there's one little thing I forgot to share, but those verses used to terrify me before I came to the Reformed world because I wasn't taught a whole lot about assurance, God. Those verses used to terrify me. I would think that if I backslid too much, I'm not saved, or maybe if I live a some time in my life in sin, I won't be able to come back to You, Lord. But we know that that's not true because anyone who goes to Christ will be received. And God, if there's anyone that's discouraged, Lord, I ask that You would give them strength to go to Your Son, Jesus. And Lord God, we ask all these things in Your most holy, precious name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.